Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, April the 19th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today in studio are Harry McGee and Jack Horgan jones Good morning to you both. Hi, Hugh. Good morning, Hugh. I was away last week, so thanks very much to Pat Lee for uh, sitting in. I was in the States, as he mentioned on several occasions. Um, it was probably the best place to be if you wanted to get away from coverage of Joe Biden's trip to Ireland, actually, but we did have a really good uh, public chat, a sort of a podcast in person in the Irish Arts Centre with Fintan O'Toole and Nancy Pelosi's Chief of Staff, Terry McCullough. It was great to meet uh, some of our American-based listeners and hear their views on the podcast afterwards, so thanks to the Irish Arts Centre for their hospitality and for setting up that. But... Back to domestic matters. Uh, Harry, first of all, the main news story, not directly a, a political story, was the acquittal of Gerard Hutch on his murder charge in the Special Criminal Court earlier this week. This does have political ramifications and there have already been rumblings from the evidence which was given at the trial and its impact on Sinn Féin because, of course, Jonathan Dowdle, the chief witness for the prosecution, is a former Sinn Féin councillor. Yeah, and it, it hasn't fully been teased out yet and I think that we're going to hear more about it in the coming days and weeks. Of course, we heard about it during the course of the trial and even before the trial. Um, uh, Jonathan Dowdall uh, was from the north inner city. He had built up a successful business um, and uh, he was poached by Sinn Féin in the run-up to the 2014 local elections to stand as a candidate in Dublin, Dublin Central in the north inner city. And of course, that's part of the constituency uh, where party leader Mary Lou MacDonald is uh, is located. Uh, of course, she wasn't leader uh, back uh, then. So he became a Sinn Féin councillor on Dublin City Council for, for a sh- relatively short time between 2014 and 2015, at which time he uh, resigned. So um, he came to public prominence uh, afterwards uh, when it was found that he and his father had um, tortured a man who, whom he had accused of ripping him off in their home, and he was uh, sentenced to a prison sentence for that uh, for a number of years. And then in more recent times, uh, he has uh, become associated uh, with the Regency shootings and the Regency trial. He was originally um, uh, charged with murder, uh, but then he agreed uh, to become a state witness uh, in exchange, uh, as we see today from Conor Gallagher, Alison O'Reardon and Owen Reynolds reporting, uh, to become a witness protection program person and uh, he turned and gave evidence against uh, Gerard Hutch. So that's kind of Jonathan Dowdall, um, the uh, politician and the the businessman, uh, but also this person who is a criminal. And there's no doubt from uh, reading the transcript of the judgment and even following uh, the evidence uh, during uh, the course of the trial that Jonathan Dowdall had a very strong connection uh, with, uh, with Republican paramilitaries, uh, whether he was a fellow traveller or whether he was involved is another question. But he had a very close relationship, for example, with Pierce McCauley, a, a well-known and notorious IRA gunman who was involved in the raid in County Limerick uh, that um, 
that resulted in the death of a guard uh, over 25 years uh, ago and he was sub- subsequently uh, convicted uh, for a terrible uh, assault on his then wife and is in prison at uh, present and he seems to have had IRA connections. So um, what, what happened was that after the Regency shooting, uh, Jonathan Dowdall and Jerry Hutch travelled north in uh, Jonathan Dowdall's uh, Toyota Land Cruiser. Unbeknownst to them, the car had been bugged by the guards. And during that 10 hours of conversation, uh, Jonathan Dowdall did, seems to have done most of the talking and disclosed a lot uh, of uh, information about his career as a Sinn Féin politician, about his connections with paramilitarism and also with his connections with Mary Lou uh, MacDonald. Of course, these were allegations. All of them have been strenuously denied by Mary Lou MacDonald. But still, it's, uh, it's, uh, at the very least, it's embarrassing for the party and it could be very damaging for the party. And a number of questions uh, arise. Why did they select Jonathan Dowdall uh, to become a candidate? There was an incident in 2011 involving an attack on the house of an uncle of his uh, that he uh, brought up with Sinn Féin uh, while they were going through a vetting process. Uh, Why did the vetting process uh, not uh, uncover some of his other paramilitary connections? And it's clear from the evidence and from the reporting in the papers that the paramilitary uh, connections were stronger uh, than had been previously uh, known. Uh, he also gave a contribution of a thousand euro to Mary Lou Macdonald back in 2011 before he entered politics. So he had a strong connection with both Sinn Féin and obviously with paramilitarism. And I think Sinn Féin have struggled to distance themselves from that during the course of the trial and in the uh, subsequent days after the election. Mary Lou Macdonald came up very quickly with a very strong statement saying that she never met Jerry Hutch. Uh, she had never had any contact with him. Uh, she said that if uh, she had known uh, that Jonathan Dowdall was the type of person he is, he would not have lasted in Sinn Féin for even one minute. But that, of course, begs questions about their vetting process. Who knew what about Jonathan Dowdall? Why they selected him as a, as a candidate? And did they know about this extensive uh, connection with both criminals, known criminals, and also with paramilitaries? So I think we can safely say, Jack, that Jonathan Dowdell is a nasty piece of work uh, involved in gangland violence of various sorts over uh, over many years. He was found to uh, have told untruths to the court uh, as well. So there is questions about his about his veracity as well as everything else. But there are still points that arise. So the, the, the main one, it seems to me at the moment, which Harry mentioned, was this question of the vetting process uh, and that doesn't seem to have been completely disposed of yet by Sinn Féin. It's the stickiest wicket, I think, that we know of that Sinn Féin are on with regards to Jonathan Dowdle. Um, Harry touched on it briefly. Uh, during those bugged conversations, um, Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdle driving north to meet with dissident Republicans uh, in relation to the fallout from the Regency Hotel shooting, uh, Jonathan Dowdle described at length how uh, he felt somebody, some unknown person, had been uh, filtering information or rumours about him to Sinn Féin, which in turn sparked what he kind of characterised as an inbound inquiry from Sinn Féin as to his involvement in this shooting incident at his uncle's house. Um, That was when it was uttered in court, in and around the kind of environs of Leinster House, that was the one thing that made ears prick up most. And it was kind of generally seen as once this trial is done and dusted, this will be the kind of main angle of political attack. Um, 
And so it has come to pass. Uh, Ona Bryn, the party's housing spokesman, was on Morning Ireland on uh, Tuesday or Monday morning and was asked about this. And uh, while he did characterise uh, Jonathan Dowdle's account as yet another of the lies uh, put into the public domain by Dowdle during the, during the trial, he did agree that this meeting between a Sinn Féin uh, official called Brian Keane and Jonathan Dowdle took place uh, before the 2014 general election. Now, he subsequently tried to characterise this as, you know, part of a kind of pro forma or normal vetting uh, approach that a party, Sinn Féin or indeed any other party, might usually deploy before running someone under its banner at an election. But I suppose, and, and that within that context, it was Dowdle who brought it up as opposed to the party becoming aware of it. Which going, is not what Dowdle says. Which is not what Dowdle says. So there is a divergence on this while there is a convergence on the question of whether the meeting occurred. So um, in, in O'Brien's rendering of it, it's not the party going to Dowdle to ask him about it. It's the party taking uh, you know, a, a kind of a normal approach and then this being flagged by Dowdle, you know, basically him saying, look, the, there are rumours about this, you know, and, and just in case this comes up, I want to flag with the party. Now, that doesn't square away the rather uncomfortable position that if that is what happened, they don't seem to have taken this as sufficient, um, as a sufficiently black mark against them not to run him. Mm. And they ran him. He was successful. He was uh, pictured with Mary Lou MacDonald and several occasions uh, he was you know she she worked out in a, in a in a boxing club in his constituency in their shared constituency which was funded by by Jerry Hutch as well um and you know the 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 kind of connective tissue the connective political tissue between Mary Lou Macdonald and and Jonathan Dowdle appeared appeared to be growing until uh, the he fell out with the party rather spectacularly in 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 2015 and and alleged bullying on his way out and everything like that and the reason i think this is really interesting is a because for the reasons i've outlined but also something about the association with gangland crime uh, as opposed to maybe the association with physical force republicanism, um, it seems to be more damaging in some ways for Sinn Féin. Now, the the basis for what for 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 that theory is when this emerged, and it could be more correlation than causation. So, health warnings attached. But when this emerged in the trial last year, that's when we started to see the Sinn Féin numbers kind of soften a little bit. And the theory goes that amongst the the kind of demographic that Sinn Féin is particularly successful with at the moment, i.e. younger people who may not have the same degree of attunement to, to the troubles and the legacies of the troubles, the suggestion of association with in any way, shape or form, people who are uh, involved in gangland crime may be much more damaging. Uh, and, and it also plays, I think, to to kind of some of the strengths of the mainstream parties and Fine Gael in particular, who would, off, who would obviously carry that kind of law and order banner. Absolutely. And that's a very interesting point. This kind of the Sinn Féin um, spokespeople have gone to extor- inordinate lengths in recent days, Hughes, Hugh, trying to explain the difference between paramilitary violence and bank robberies, uh, which is not bad because the motives are pure and pure criminality, which is bad because the motives are less pure. It's but even for them, there's grey areas here, aren't there? Because as as the whole life story of Jonathan Dowdle, as I read it, makes clear, there's, there's huge blurring, particularly between the dissident Republican movement, most of whom were previously in the mainstream Republican movement, and straightforward gangland crime. Well, he wasn't going up north to 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 admire the view of the Boyne from the new bridge uh, in, in County Louth. I mean, he was accompanying Jerry... Hutch because of his Republican connections and he knew 
Republican people and not Republican people who stand for election, but Republican people who were involved or maybe were still involved in the conflict uh, up there. And if you look at what uh, uh, Tara Burns, the, the, the lead judge in the special criminal court said, uh, she described him as a ruthless, base, callous criminal who told lie after lie. And then she also said, which I thought was quite interesting, that he was a suspected IRA member. And if there's any evidence uh, behind that, I think that's also problematic for Sinn Féin because he was joining the party at a time when he was a suspected IRA member. This is six years after or more after Shana Walsh uh, released the, the, the famous video. Uh, this is also uh, 15 years uh, after uh, the Good Friday Agreement uh, when, when uh, Sinn Féin decided that they were going to go on an exclusively peaceful and democratic democratic path. Now, I must add as a caveat to that, that his connections at this stage might have been with dissidents uh, rather than former provisional members of the IRA. But still in all, as a political proposition, I think it's still problematic uh, for Sinn Féin that a person with known connections in 2011 up to 2014 uh, was still involved in the party. Just in relation to the impact, I think Jack made a fair point in relation to that as well. I think that those who feel iffy about uh, voting Sinn Féin might be f steered away from the party because of this. I think those who are already committed to Sinn Féin and would be Sinn Féin supporters won't be too put out uh, by all that has been uh, revealed during the course of this extraordinary trial. We should say it was a pretty senior member of Sinn Féin who carried out this vetting process, wasn't it? Yeah, Brian Keane. Uh, he's, uh, I think he's he's from um, the north side of Dublin. I think he's from from Dunamede. So um, the suggestion would would be that you know he would kind of um, be well versed in uh, in the kind of the politics of of North Dublin and have had had a, had a fairly extensive role um, in candidate vetting. And indeed, that is that is you know Sinn Fein's uh, stance here. That like you know this was a normal piece of of candidate vetting, a normal normal piece of the pre election architecture, and that Brian Keane was doing this with with uh, Jonathan Dowdle as as uh, and others as well. And so. Um, I take Harry's point and I take your point as well. So Sinn Féin obviously just want to, you know, close the book on this and move on. Do you think they can do that? No, <laughs> is the short answer. I think that we're now at the stage where um, the the Hutch, the Hutch trial, but more pertinently, the, the personage of, of Jonathan Dowdle um, and his his branding as a, as a, Sinn, as a former Sinn Féin councillor has permeated absolutely solidly into into the wider public mind you know I think that there's a man in the street factor here I think that if you walked out into Tara Street here and asked uh, 10 people I suspect 8 or 9 of them would know who Jonathan Dowdle is they'd know his association with Sinn Féin and they'd know his association with dissident republicanism and uh, his association with the with the Regency murders and the trial of Jerry Hutch um, so like it becomes a byword it becomes something that's extremely easily weaponised uh, and you see that you see that in the exchanges across the floor of the doll where Sinn Féin is is, is challenged and said and, and it is demanded of them that they return this one thousand euro donation, you know, that he made to the party, and that they donated to to groups who are active in the northeast inner city combating the scourge of drug addiction, uh, and you know that is just part of the of the of the furniture now. I think that we'll we'll see that between now and and the next election because they see and they perceive that it that it is effective and that it sticks. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see Hugh um, how it impacts on the younger demographic because polls consistently show that Sinn Féin is getting a huge amount of support from younger people across all. 
uh, the social categories and um, a, a lot of things that are, are associated with Sinn Féin's past don't seem to have had an impact on them in terms of their voting intentions. It would be interesting to see whether this uh, will change things. I, I don't think it will change things too much. I think for people of my generation, things like this seep in quite deeply because we remember the troubles and we remember the violence. I think those who grew up after the troubles, I think it will be noted, but I don't think it will have as deep an impact. Or it's as not deep a deal breaker. No, no, not for them, not for that generation, in my estimation. Right, moving on uh, to Fine Gael. John Paul Phelan um, is the latest in a, in a number now of, of fairly, you know, mid-ranking Fine Gael TDs who you would have thought were in the kind of the middle of their career yeah. who've announced that they're not going to step aside at the next election. Yeah, so there, there, there's a Fine Gael issue here and then there's a Leo Varadkar issue, right? Um, when Leo Varadkar was uh, running to become leader of uh, Fine Gael against Simon Coveney and succeed Enda Kenny, he had three kind of close advisors, uh, John Paul Phelan, uh, Owen Murphy and Michael Darcy, uh, all of whom are now uh, either gone from the Oireachtas in the case of Michael Darcy and Owen Murphy, both of whom resigned from the um, the Shannon and Dahl uh, after the last election, uh, and now John Paul Phelan, who uh, is is on his way out, and it's it's expected he won't run in the next in the next general election, and had in truth been disaffected from the Fine Gael leadership for for, for some time. Um, he was a minister of state during the term of the last government, but wasn't given a new portfolio. Uh, and he obviously he had a, a high profile health difficulty in the last few years as well. Which he had a heart attack about three years attack. ago. Yeah, yeah, serious heart attack um, uh, about three, three years ago, and in his early forties as well. Uh, so that that is obviously a, a significant contributing factor. But so there, there there's an issue where that kind of Praetorian Guard that was around Radcliffe at that time, that very important time, which ran that very very effective campaign. I mean, we all probably remember that time when, you know, it was just this remarkable series of endorsements from the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party, which kind of ended the race with Coveney before it even began. Like, I think it was, I, I remember, I have a very vivid memory of sitting at home and just listening to the the numbers of people just ringing in and vouching support for Varadkar and it just it just blowing Coveney's camp out of the water and Coveney stayed in and made a fight of it with the, with the grassroots, which was interesting and worthwhile, but like ultimately it was over before it started, as I say. So that's the kind of Varadkar issue. Now, that, that begs a wider question as to whether he kind of needs a Praetorian Guard now or you know whether that's something that you need more when you're kind of up and coming and when you're in the leadership do you necessarily need people around you a kitchen cabinet or do you kind of or do you hope that your senior ministers are your kitchen cabinet i.e. that your cabinet is, is your kitchen cabinet If um, they were the Praetorian Guard might they have had reasonable expectations of greater advancement than they got from Varadkar over the last five or six years Yeah quite possibly and Varadkar has, has not been good at ending political careers he's not he's not shown necessarily that kind of um Ruthless streak. Uh, and I think that he's not unique in leaders who uh, often struggle to kind of be uh, ruthless and, and, and chop people's heads off, politically mm. speaking, in order to allow for that kind of generational process of renewal. Plus, he to had a occur. sort of Plus a mathematical problem. This coalition has far fewer job opportunities. This, this for coalition Finnegale. has far fewer. Um, but he did have an awful lot of jobs to hand out in the last one, you know, mm. uh, and. and, and um, I mean, the more general Fine Gael problem is that there's a, there's a now a middle generation that extends beyond those three uh, to the likes of Brendan Griffin, uh, the Kerry TD, former Minister of State, very highly thought of, former uh, former Deputy Government Chief Whip as well. 
uh, who is also not running at the next election. There are open questions over uh, Paul Keogh has been mentioned and dispatched as someone who may not run again. Um, so you have a kind of middle generation of people who have been down in the Oireachtas for quite some time, quite experienced, quite well thought of, quite capable. And, and there, there's, there are several of them now have indicated they're not running again. And on top of that, then you have a kind of more senior generation of people who have either been at cabinet or served in Minister of State portfolios and are seen to be kind of coming out the far side of their career. And the question is whether they're going to run again. People like um, like Frankie Fien or or Charlie Flanagan or um, or, or uh, Michael Creed. So there there is this question of you know where the next generation of Fine Gael, both from within and from without the parliamentary party, is going to be coming from, and how many candidates of quality are they going to have to source on the ground uh, in the next general election to at run At a time people? of electoral decline at a time when of they're under pressure. Where, where they're under pressure and where they've been put under a particularly acute short-term pressure by this very bad poll that happened in the Sunday Times. Now, health warnings apply. This was just one poll, but I think they were down nine points or something like that. It was 15% was the number they were on, which was an extraordinarily low uh, figure. Now, there is every possibility that's a bit of a rogue poll, withholding judgment until you see that trend sustained in, in other polls. But like, certainly it set nerves a-jangling within Fine Gael, and there was a series of articles in the Mail on Sunday and the Daily Mail uh, on Monday of this week kind of quoting backbench Fine Gael TDs who had no shortage of criticism for Fine Gael, for Leo Varadkar and his leadership and particularly his decision to take on board or to kind of take a kind of uh, a positioning ownership of, of housing, uh, which they think is, is a dubious call at this point. Very interesting. I mean, there does come a time in the life of parliamentary parties when they see that. I mean, the, the most obvious one and far more catastrophic, I suppose, was the was the Fianna Fáil jumping ship that happened in advance of the 2011 election when they really lost all their frontline politicians. Most of them decided to step down and not to run again. This is not as dramatic as that, Harry, but it has a slight tinge of it. Fine Gael have been in power for a very, very long time they now, have, 12 I, years. I, It'll be 14 years at the next election. Yeah. They, they, they need to go into opposition. I think every party needs to go into opposition periodically. Because and that's not necessarily an attractive proposition if you are a mid-ranking politician of the sort we're N- no, discussing No, and here. to those, you can add Joe McHugh is, is not standing again and Dennis Nocton, a former Fine Gael TD, has decided that they're going to retire. I think there is a separate proposition into why people who have been TDs for a longish time uh, but are still mid-career, as Jack pointed out, are leaving politics. Um, is it because of the increasingly uh, uh, battle of attrition kind of atmosphere that is associated with politics nowadays. It is interesting that they're all men. Yeah. Um, if they were women, people would be talking about, you well, know, the I've example of Jacinta Ardern Nicholas or Nicholas Sturgeon. We've read lots of yeah. articles about why, you know, successful and uh, uh, intelligent and powerful female politicians are leaving politics. And there have been lots of articles l- looking through uh, uh, the entrails of the decision and trying to analyse why that is. I think there is a piece of analysis to do as to why so many politicians of a certain age uh, from a certain political background have decided that they're going to uh, uh, sling their hook and and retire from politics at a comparatively young age. Uh, But um, looking at uh, what's happened to Fine Gael as a whole, I think the party does need to go into opposition. I think Fianna Fáil probably also needs to go into opposition. They're just back. (laughs) But perhaps they weren't long enough in opposition. Uh, And Sinn Féin at some stage probably need to go into government. Uh, You know, politics is a a cyclical uh, uh, business. And I think parties, when they do go into government, you know, at some stage, they begin to lose their sheen. And at some stage, they begin to lose support. And once they start losing support, that's when they really have to start looking at, you know, what they are, what they stand for, where they're going, Mm. uh, is the leadership of the party uh, the correct one 
you know, all of those kind of renewal questions uh, though need to be uh, put. That, that outlook has been one that Leo Varadkar has, has adopted at, at times. Uh, that, after, that they're better off in opposition yeah, for a while. Like yeah. If my memory serves, I mean, certainly after 2020, apparently he was but, going around the place in a Well, they were expected thinking, to go into opposition in 2020. Yeah, and, but I think after 2016, if I recall correctly, some of the reporting at the time suggested that he was amongst the camp that kind of was like, look, we've lost this election yeah. and we shouldn't try and, you know, Jimmy something up with uh, with with confidence and supply. We should just accept the message. Y- of the yeah, well, they went the from from seventy six seats. I think they won twenty eleven to fifty five in twenty sixteen. So there was a a big loss of seats. Nothing like the dramatic loss of seats that Fianna Fáil had back in twenty eleven. I think the Fianna Fáil TDs who decided not to stand um, in the election of twenty eleven just saw the writing on the wall. But there was, I mean, it was a moment of catastrophe for the party. But it was also true that they had been in power for fourteen years. Fine Gael have never been in government for this length of time, unless you count the common and nail governments of the of of the nineteen twenty. So there is an element of exhaustion there. There's funny enough. Last week in New York, I was asking Finton about this, and I asked him the question: Surely the the time has come where Sinn Fein, as you say, Jack, actually needs to be in government in the same way as Fine Gael needs not to be in government. Well, yes, I think so. I think, what, what's that phrase? You know, there's nothing as powerful as an idea. This time has come. And, and there's, there's a kind of a modality of that to Irish politics. Like, it just feels like it is kind of their time to a certain extent that, like, you know, there is this kind of irrepressible uh, momentum behind them, which I think does make it still the most likely outcome of the next election, that it's Sinn Féin plus one. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't make it, like, inevitable. Uh, like I think that if you if you were to take the opposite view that like there is just there's a, there is a possibility for a mainstream government you know the the constituent parts of which are to be determined after the election, but if you to take if you were to take it that that mainstream trend is represented by the current government, they will go into the next election all things being equal so long as they don't trip up over a housing issue or a climate or environment issue or something some other minor crisis some other crisis between now and, and, and after the next budget, which is when I anticipate the election is going to be, look at the exchequer figures. They're going to go in probably off the back of two giveaway budgets, or if not giveaway, certainly very sizable. Like, those kind of things, you do tend to win elections or at least have a decent chance of winning elections off the back of them. So yeah. I wouldn't discount yeah, the idea that, that a mainstream government will be will be installed again, notwithstanding the fact that the most likely outcome, I, I think, is probably still a Sinn Féin. Yeah, government. because yesterday, the figures that were released yesterday, which were extraordinary, I mean, a 10 billion yeah. surplus 2023, 16 billion in 2024, and 18 billion in 2025, and over 20 billion in 26. Although are, their predictions are always wrong. Absolutely. But they're, they're, they're good usually, predictions. They're usually an undershot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, with corporation tax. The, the real the surpluses are pretty big. It's, well. uh, as Leo Faradkar said, it's, you know, it is the golden uh, goose and it will continue to be the golden goose for some time. But um, that, that sets the fault lines for the next election. I mean, the next election is going to be a battle between a government uh, arguing, you know, that it has caused an economic miracle mm. versus an opposition, which is saying that we are uh, enduring the worst or housing at least experienced an economic miracle. I don't know yeah. if, they can, if they can fully claim credit for it. I'm sure they claim They will claim credit for it. But the fault line yeah. would be the economic miracle yeah. versus the housing crisis. And that's, that, yeah. that's, or at that's least where the, the, elect- the, the political consistency that allows for the economic miracle to occur. Yeah. Plus, you know, we've been very good at emergencies and we've deployed the, the right resource of the state when needed to during COVID and, and all the rest of it. That'll be, that'll be the pitch. Yep. But like, 
they're still going to look like the old guard. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, they still, and, the, and they still will be vulnerable to the fact, the facts yeah. on the ground, the political facts on the ground, which are that they cannot or have not, or for whatever reason, the chronic crises in aspects of public policy provision continue to exist. And that's their yeah. key vulnerability. I, I think they, I think they, they, both parties have, have a difficulty with identity and with brand. I think Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are brands that are no longer relevant to a, a lot of people out there and have no real meaning to them. Fine Gael have tried to uh, move towards a particular position, which is kind of pro-business uh, and uh, entrepreneurship and what have you. Fianna Fáil, I think, have struggled to find any identity in the past couple of years. I think that's been reflected in the polls. In a way, they're kind of like uh, a, you know, a Kodak company in, in a digital age. They're, they're struggling to find relevance and they're struggling to find purchase with, with, with the electorate. And I, I think what's going to happen over the next 10 years and I could be wrong, and I've been so wrong on so many occasions, is that I, I think one of the parties might even cease to exist within a decade or a decade and a half to be replaced by a kind of a rebranded and new kind of central kind of middle road party, as has happened in other countries like France and elsewhere where parties have emerged out of nowhere. That's a fascinating and so, thought. And I'm tempted to, to jump in, but I know that Hugh really wants us to stop talking. <laughs> well, no, this is fascinating stuff. And my God, we we will absolutely tear all this stuff apart and put it back together again in all kinds of different ways over the next year and a half as we lead up to that election. I'm just going to offer one thought myself, which is that if your uh, alternative is right and the government manages to pull it out of the bag on the back of all that money, um, I think there'd be quite a legitimate expression of... Uh, outrage from the people who who did want change. Now we we always get this. We got this in 2020 when Sinn Fein. You know, some people said that Sinn Fein should be in government because because of their result, which was nonsense, as we know, because of the parliamentary electoral system that we have. But if you have a substantial increase in the vote for Sinn Fein, like a really substantial increase to the high 30s or the mid 30s or whatever, and they're still kept out of government, I think a lot of the people who voted for Sinn Fein and people who who voted for change over the last of uh, uh, over the last few years or so will actually feel that they're being, you know, denied their fair due, you know, and that could cause all kinds of political problems. Yeah, and look, it could deepen, deepen the kind of alienation uh, from the, the kind of political project that is the stage that exists within within a generation, I would say, of you yeah. know, the under-35s, or even, probably even the under-40s under at this stage. Well, um, indeed, they'll be under-50s by the time Sinn Féin gets into power. Bitch, yeah, exactly. And we've, we've touched on this before many times in the podcast, you know, about the kind of the, the generational issues and, and all the rest of it. I mean, another possibility is that, like, a mainstream government begins to, to look, uh, from a policy point of view, purely uh, a bit more like a Sinn Féin government. I mean, they, they don't, they don't uh, adopt any of the kind of... Um, the, the the constitutional aspirations or anything like that, but like they may adopt some of the kind of housing and health. We are policies. way past time for our ad break, so we're going to take it now. But just before we do, just to remind you uh, that if you don't subscribe to IrishTimes.com, you really should, so you can hear all these discussions and more uh, played out in the exquisite prose, which you'll read from the likes of Jack, Harry, and many more of our correspondents. We'll be right back after this. And you're very welcome back. Harry and Jack are still here Jack, this ongoing rumbling row over the abortive attempt to uh, appoint or second former Chief Medical Officer Tony Holohan to a, a position in Trinity College uh, got a great new lease of life today when we saw the uh, the report on the issue. It sort of lifted the lid on simmering rows and resentments at the highest corridors of power. Yes, it was great reading. Uh, I haven't been this entertained by a government commission report in many, many years. Um, just to quickly recap, uh, so Tony Olin, the chief medical officer, became a household name during the pandemic, uh, began feeling in and around August of 2021, you know, I'm, I'm finishing up here, 
looking towards the next thing and entered into a dialogue with senior officials, including uh, Robert Walsh, the Secretary General of his department, and Martin Fraser, the then Secretary General to the to the government, about you know the next phase. That was put on ice because we had another upsurge in COVID uh, across the winter of 21, 22, and kind of came out of the deep freeze in, in uh, February and late January of 2022. So... At that stage, uh, Holohan, Dr. Holohan begins uh, talking with uh, universities, particularly Trinity College and University College Dublin, about potentially some kind of visiting public health professorship, uh, which would occur on a basis of secondment from the Department of Health uh, and would be, I suppose, envisaged to uh, enhance and further the uh, public health leadership of Ireland, which is seen as something that we are quite deficient in, and something that needs an awful lot of a lot of brain power dedicated to it. So, look on the face of it, I think a, a pretty good idea. You oh, know, sounded fine. Yeah, sound, sound, sound fine. The, the problem is the execution. Um, as the report outlines uh, and and is kind of broadly critical of in many ways, the idea was developed um, largely by uh, Dr. Holan and Robert Watt um, over kind of February and March with the knowledge of Martin Fraser, although his he, he disputes the extent to which he actually Maybe knew Maybe we should explain for our listeners who this. Robert Watt and Martin Fraser are. Yeah, so I mean, how long have you got? <laughs> Robert Watt is the, the, the top civil servant currently in the Department of Health, uh, kind of extremely high profile man for, for a civil servant, uh, was the, I think, youngest, if not certainly one of the youngest ever Secretary Generals of a government department when he was put in charge of the newly formed Department of Public Expenditure and Reform uh, at the age of 44, I think, uh, is widely seen as, you know, he can be abrasive and combative. He has a public profile like most civil servants don't. Um, you know, I think once he gave a an impromptu press conference at Glenty's at the McGill Summer School, which is something that, you know, if you know the congenital makeup of Irish civil servants, the idea that they would just kind of sit down with journalists to, to bat things around on the record is, is a bit is a bit absurd. Um so but that's the kind of person he is. I mean in many ways his polar opposite is is Martin Fraser. Immensely powerful person behind the scenes in government, um, but very low profile. Uh, you know, outside of the bubble would not really have been known about, despite the fact that he was the most senior civil servant in the state, the Secretary General to the government, Secretary General to the Department of the Taoiseach, uh, the two roles that he occupied before moving on to being the current ambassador to London. Um, so that's that's the potted history of those two men. Um, but this all emerges uh, actually as a result of an Irish Times inquiry uh, about Dr. Holland's future. We learned that he was going to be moving on and in the process of, of trying to, to, to stack that up, we prompted a press release from the Department of Health, which was seen seemingly kind of rushed out and made no reference to the uh, the underlying agreement which was to govern uh, the as uh, this economy which emerged over time and as it emerged became more politically problematic, particularly this question of research funding, which was to be sequestered, it seems, from the Health Research Board and given to Trinity College. Two million a year over a period of 10 years, 20 million, not, not an insignificant amount of funding whatsoever. Questions emerged over the governance of that decision-making process. The Taoiseach of the day, Michal Martin, said it should be paused. Tony Holland says, look, do you know what? You can keep it and steps down, retires as a public servant, uh, rather than rather than try and pursue what is clearly a, an ailing effort uh, to to secure the secondment. The report goes into some detail. It's it's critical of uh, of the manner in which this whole process was put together. It's critical of you know the extent of the involvement of Dr. Holan in aspects of the deal. It's critical of the the governance and oversight of that figure of two million. I mean, it, there is an open question really as to how that figure was arrived at. The 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 best the report kind of gets 
stats is that both Dr. Holan and Robert Watt told the reviewer, Maura Quinn, that like it was a seen as a an, a figure that was a good statement of intent to TCD, to Trinity College, who was going to be the accepting party on the, the secondment, uh, as opposed to anything that was arrived at by a kind of you know, structured process. So this all came out, but also another another part of it came out, which was, you know, incredibly interesting because um, Robert Watt wrote during the review process. So we're getting into the weeds a little bit here, but during when these reports are being uh, being done up, a draft is shared with the principals and they're allowed to come back with comment. At that stage, Robert Watt wrote in to Maura Quinn and said, you know, various conclusions and findings of this report are inaccurate. Um, they should be removed in- entirely. And he had a particular problem with this suggestion that seems to have been in the original draft that, you know, the government, the political side of this was not kept adequately informed. And he said, well, you know, I told the Secretary General of the Department of Taoiseach, Martin Fraser, and my understanding was that the Chief of Staff of the Taoiseach, the then Taoiseach, Michal Martin, was also kept abreast of things. Deirdre Galan. This is where it gets This is where fun. it gets re- Deirdre Galan is then alerted to this kind of invocation of her as being, you know, the conduit by which this project of the of, of the permanent government was being um, the, the conduit between the, the project of the permanent government and the political side and sends this absolute excoriating email to Maura Quinn calling out this suggestion at length and, you know, the language is there for anyone to read. Um, but basically, like, you know, attacking the suggestion and being heavily critical of Robert Watt. Um, Mark Quinn also goes back to Martin Fraser, who is at variance with other with other points that, that Watt has made. So you have a kind of a divergence between some of the kind of most powerful people in the country or certainly the most powerful people in this episode. And they knew that these statements would be made public. I think they probably did. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they you, you, they may not have known exactly that the the entirety of the transcripts of you know her, her interview with Martin Fraser or that the entirety of Deirdre Glan's email uh, was going to be published as as an appendix. I'm not sure exactly, but like you know, the the report is is interesting and valuable and has controversial findings. But I mean, the truly gobsmacking parts are are in are in the appendices, and and I think it's, this afternoon we're recording this coming up to midday on Wednesday, and Robert Watt is in front of the Finance Committee to discuss this report this this lunchtime so it will be interesting to see his view interesting I I mean the general listener might wonder who cares but I think the Irish bureaucracy the the system, the administrative state, is is is, is particularly opaque. So we don't always, it's, you know, get a sense opaque. of it. It should be are. more transparent, but it um, also has to be. They have to everything within the, the culture of the civil servant is yes. There is a ruined dangan culture, which is everything is opaque and kind of kept secret. But there's also a counterbalancing rule that everything that they do must be fair and above board. And there's a particular onus on civil servants to be as honest as they possibly can. I mean, dishonesty is something that, that is used to be a firing offence in the civil service, I'm, I'm sure uh, it is. I'm not saying that there's, there's, there's dishonesty here, but certainly there was a, a evidence of, of a ready-up. I mean, the, the, the job, there was a precedence for this. What happened was that there were secretary-generals of departments who got contracts for seven years. And once they came to the end of the seven years, they were short of their retirement age. So the government had to decide, what are we going to do with these guys? So they have two of them so far, were, have been seconded to academia, to NUIG or University of Galway and the University of Maynooth, one of whom is Sean O'Fallu, the former head of the Department of Education, uh, to do research work there on their salaries entitled to all the entitlements that they would get 
until such time as they retire. So this was the arrangement that was going to be made for Tony Holohan. But it seems to have been arranged exclusively by Tony Holohan and Robert Watt. And the first inconsistency that came out at the time was that Robert Watt told Trinity that we're going to have ring fence funding of €2 million Euro per year. As Jack was saying, that's €20 million or more uh, in, in the time between now and, and uh, Tony Holohan's uh, retirement. And the... the um, the, the the he wasn't entitled to to give that money. He later admitted that this was going to form part of a competitive process. Which, but how which, could it, was, be a which it wasn't described as in the in the kind of yeah. But I mean, it, how anything, could yeah. it be part of a competitive process when he'd already ring fenced the money? You know, it would only become competitive if he was vying for that money. But he'd already guaranteed uh, that money. And the second um, thing that Jack averted to there was this uh, unseeming row. Uh, between Robert Watt on the one hand and Martin Fraser and Deirdre Galan, who is Michal Martin's chief of staff, on the other. And Deirdre Galan was absolutely obdurate in her language in terms of responding to this. And she said, I was never informed. I did not know. Uh, I did not know that it was a secondment as opposed to a new appointment. I did not know that he was not leaving. I did not know the details. I was never informed about this. Whereas Robert Watt insisted that she was. So we have left with this kind of conflict of interest that's hanging there that has not, not been resolved by the report and has not been resolved by any of the government ministers. And the other thing that was unsettling uh, in my regard was that once Robert Watt communicated that he was unhappy with the draft report, he started referring to emails uh, that had been sent uh, and the author of the report was unaware of those emails and had never seen them. So there was material uh, that was germane to the report that wasn't included in the report until afterwards when Robert Watts started referring to them when he was trying to assert that others in government uh, were uh, aware of this. It reminded me of a line that Mark Brannock used many years ago in relation to a report on Martin uh, Cullen uh, and uh, what Mark wrote was, nobody has done anything wrong but it will never happen again. <laughs> and to me, it seems... I think that's, a, know, they're, that's they're, a fantastic, very Irish line. And a very Mark yeah. Brannock line. It was a brilliant line at the time and it's one that I've always remembered. But it seems to me to be particularly relevant to this report. There are so there are more unsettling questions about the outcome of this report that, than have been answered so, in the oh, but report. But lessons have been learned, right? No, lessons <laughs> have been learned, so, of course. So, so one last question then on this, Jack. Uh, I mean, colour me cynical, but given the reputation of Watt as somebody who doesn't necessarily, you know, follow the, the usual protocols on these things and there's a bit of les majesté, he'll just do what he does. Does this maybe reveal, you know, if he had just followed the usual rules and had a so-called competitive process, would Trinity have got its 20 million and everything would have been hunky-dory, but it was because he just he just didn't do that, that that this came to light? Well, like, I think, yeah, I think had the process been put together differently, it would have been okay. Honestly, I do. And I don't really, there's, there's large parts of it I don't understand, even though I was quite closely involved in covering it. Like, I don't understand why it happened, had, had to happen so fast. You know, I mean, it seems that the, the critical period seems to have been a period of a few weeks, and in the space of less than a month, um, one of the one of the emails shows that uh, Tony Holland writes to Martin Fraser and says, "By the way, you know, the the quantum of research funding associated with this will be one million, and then less than a month later, it's two million, and it's never explained why. The report is 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 mute on it, presumably because the reviewer couldn't identify why this." The Department of Health, of course, is known for its, its, its excellent accountancy uh, practices and its control of cash flow. And when the reviewer went to seek correspondence between Trinity College Dublin and the Department of Health, uh, she was told that none existed because it was run through Dr. Holland's personal email account. Mm. So, I mean, there are there are there are okay. there are open questions as to the the governance of this process. I mean, there is also an open question as to you know the question of 
of of Robert Watt and his style and you know there's like there's a whole interesting story there to be told about how he came into the Department of Health and it's got political roots really because the Department of Health was struggling um during the pandemic you know and there was first, controversy over his salary and there's controversy over his salary and he is he is seen as a very effective operator but the manner in which he is effective and the manner in which he operates then breeds sequelae like this, you know? So, you know, this is this is the, the price that you pay, I think. So one last story before we go. The Irish Daily Mail reports this morning, Harry, that the independent TD, Michael Fitzmaurice, may be in the early stages of setting up a new political party, something like an Irish Farmers Party. Uh, the, the, the Farmers Party in the Netherlands has been incredibly politically successful over the last year or so in achieving some objectives. Do you rate this as a story? Do you think this is possible? I, I, I do think it's possible. I was very interested to note that Michael Fitzmaurice suggested it and then said he didn't want to be any part of it. So um, he's kind of being the hurler on the ditch. But I think there is a possibility there. I think there's a very strong um, anti-green sentiment amongst uh, uh, the rural population, especially those in the farming community, because that's what drove the example in the Netherlands, wasn't it? It was uh, resistance to absolutely. To and you, when when they hear about uh, measures that will restrict movement in terms of fossil fuel cars, uh, very onerous uh, climate change uh, targets for the agricultural sector, that will, in the long run, you know, lead to uh, very radical changes in farm practices, uh, which will have an impact on profitability and will also possibly lead to reduction in the national herd. And it's, you know, it's it's natural that the farming community feel under threat by all of this. They feel that their livelihoods and their way of life is uh, under uh, threat. And uh, the easy thing is to identify, you know, the bogeyman or the, the straw man, and the straw man happens to be the Green Party. So I, I have no doubt that if a rural party was set up, I think it would uh, attain moderate success uh, in in the Irish context, I mean, we have had a long list of parties, including rural parties, that have been formed in Ireland and which have shown brightly for a while, and then have just disappeared. But moderate, mo- common and others, true, for example. True, but in the in the in the Irish system, moderate success can lead to significant influence, and there is a constituency, isn't there, for this? I mean, not just against the Green Party, although they become the bogeyman for for people. I mean, the climate action plans are in place, regardless of who's in. Uh, in government yeah, now, the legislation they? has been passed. Mm. So, I mean, I remember someone observed to me a little while ago um, uh, something that, that an official had said to them, which is that, you know, Michal Martin, Leo Varadkar, you know, we, we only have to deal with them for the, the time period that they're in government, but Eamon Ryan we're going to be dealing with for generations because of the legislative legacy of, of what has been introduced. So there is a kind of question of, of you know, whether removing the Green Party or parties with outwardly green tendencies from government will necessarily reverse the course that we uh, but we there are, is we a constituency for, for an anti-environmentalist there, there's movement. a constituency there for that argument. Mm. So I think that's the important part, and I think that Michael Fitzmaurice is right. He's right that he's identified it, and I think that we in this studio have discussed, you know, at different times. Um, what uh, might be best place to cater for what might broadly be construed as like a traditionalist outlook in Irish politics? Um, I think that Engtu could could be there, and we we, we spoke with Patrick Tobin in the studio about that before. I think in some modes, Fianna Fáil um, could could fit into that gap, uh, and Michael Fitzmaurice I think has correctly identified that if a farmers party or a rural party could be could be constituted, then they could fill that gap. The problem is that that gap is actually not catered for from a party point of view, 
But it is catered for within the Oireachtas. And it is catered for by a large group of rural independents or just independents who, uh, who, who mop up this vote. And they do so without having to uh, burden themselves with anything as, uh, as, as, un, as inconvenient mm. as a party whip. There's at least 20, you know, I'd say. At least, there's, when you, there's when at least you add 20. in so, all the regional members of the regional group and also the rural group. Yeah, and they now seem to be able to, uh, to exploit the political moment that we've, we find it in, that we find ourselves in, to extract some form of policy-making power, as we saw during the, uh, the ending of the eviction ban and the concessions that had to be made to the regional independent group as opposed to the rural independent group. Uh, we'll need a kind of cut out and keep guide to these guys in the Irish Times before long. So, like, the question is, like, there is a gap in for the market. For subscribers only. For subscribers only, yeah. Um, the, the, there is a gap in the market, but, like, can the Irish political system, or does it want to contort itself into the shape that fills that gap, or is it already catered for? I or think are that's, the, that's are the Are the incentives in our system and the way that our political culture has developed uh, means that it's, as Jack is implying there, it's just, you know, it's a much better idea to be an independent than to oh, be in a party. Of course it is, because mm. you, have all the, you have all the influence without having any of the responsibility. And Shane Ross and uh, his cohorts before the 2016 election tried to kind of divvy that up into a party that wasn't a party. It was the Independent Alliance. And it was a group. It was a group that wanted to be in government, but didn't want to have the restrictions uh, associated with responsibility of being in government. So there was a kind of a free whip. You know, there was no, you did, the, the, the party, the, its members didn't have to adhere to any kind of a whip. Well, indeed, because it was a pretty disparate group. Yeah, so it was whatever, whatever you're hap, uh, what you're having yourself. So you could have the power and you could also have the authority, but you could, you, could, you could somehow evade the responsibility. But once they went into government, they found that that just didn't work. And, uh, you know, that once they went into government, they did have to assume the role of being a political party, even though they didn't describe themselves as such. I think Jack is right. I think there is a big cohort of TDs there who would if, if a rural party were to be formed they would be the natural people to fit into that but whether any of them have the inclination or the desire to do so is another question because it would entail all the difficulties that are ensued uh, with being a member of a political party especially one when it goes into government the discipline that's required in terms of you know taking decisions that aren't crowd pleasers and also you know facing, uh, you know, waves of unpopularity from the voters, which happens when you go into Partic- government. Particularly, they would have to take decisions that, to some extent, accommodated climate policy. Yep. You can't just pretend it's not there. Right. So you heard it here first. It's unlikely to happen. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I don't think it. it's going to happen. Okay. Well, you can, I, listeners can check back on this I, I when, think, it, when, it, when it storms. I, I think within the, the next decade, I think that within the next decade, we might see a new centrist, a new kind of populist centrist party emerging. And that's definitely a subject for another podcast. But we will leave it there for the moment. Thanks very much to Jack and to Harry. This podcast is produced by Declan Conlon. It's engineered by JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you very soon, indeed. But until then, goodbye and thanks very much for listening. <laughs>